Well, it's the end of the week, and you know that it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Savalero, and we're very excited to chat today because we got a really important topic, I think, to talk about. But this episode of Inside EMS is sponsored by Pulsera. Learn more about how you can build a regional system of care for free at www.pulsera.com EMS. With me always in the chair to my right is my good friend Kelly Grayson. Kelly, today we thought we would take on the topic of the new EMS scope of practice. And that mm-hmm. came out. And you and I, we took a couple weeks. You know, this came out a couple weeks ago. But yeah. we wanted to be able to be thorough. We, we wanted to be able to read it. We wanted to be able to digest it. And that's why we're kind of doing it a couple weeks after it came out. But, you know, if I ask you the first question, as you now sit here, what was your initial thoughts of the EMS scope of practice? Um, much ado about nothing. Um, it, it, it didn't really strike me as anything earth shatteringly new that we, we didn't, uh, realize was going to be in it in the first place. Um, I, I wasn't, the only reason I wasn't disappointed that more things weren't included in the scope of practice because I kind of knew ahead of time it was going to be pretty vanilla. Um, but I think for me, the, the greatest takeaways in the, in the new scope of practice document are the stuff in the fine print. The, the tone of the document rather than the, the matrix of, of what skills an EMT or an advanced EMT or a paramedic can pr- perform. Uh, I think the intent of the document and the, and the tone in which it was written uh, is a, a little more instructive than, than the actual details of it. You know, it seemed to me, I mean, to me, it was like, uh, you know, one of those uh, Christmas mornings where you're hoping to get something cool. And you got pajamas. And you got socks. That's right. (laughs) And, but, but here was my thought as I read this, you know, it's only 57 pages. And if you haven't had the opportunity, you know, we'll put it up there in the show notes so you can kind of read it. But, you know, to me, as I read it, I'm like, you know, the, the people who are writing this, don't they listen to what's going on in our career field? Don't they hear the things that are happening in our career field? Why is it that they didn't, you know, listen to the way that, uh, you know, we talk about how education is, you know, happening and how credentialing is happening in organizations. And when we think about what we need to teach EMTs and paramedics and, and the other levels as well as represented, why wasn't there more meat? Why wasn't there more substance? And I kind of thought that the whole way through reading 57 pages. Yeah. You know, I, I think that part of the problem with being a consensus document is some of the people speaking for the consensus are representing states still firmly stuck in the 1980s and 1990s when it comes to EMS practice. Uh, and they're they're not really progressive in the way they view the practice of emergency medical services. Um, but you have to, you know, if you're going to build a nationwide consensus document, you have to, to let those people speak uh, and take their concerns into consideration. I just don't, you know, it, it's the tone of the document clearly states, and it states here, I think on page nine, uh, that um, it is intended to be a floor and not a ceiling. This is the minimum scope of practice and that they fully expect uh, state agencies or uh, states to to um, augment or, or include skills above and beyond the scope of practice, that this is a floor. But what we found historically is, is that no matter how this document was intended, uh, the way many states are going to treat it is if it's a ceiling. And, and that's the problem here. The devil's in the details and in the implementation. You know, I hear you hear the same thing about national registry exam standards uh, and how 
some people in some states are, are hate the National Registry exam because of its lack of realism and and how uh, how much minutia and, and nitpicky the the examiners get into. But that's not the way the exam was written. That's the way the state bureaucrats are interpreting it and, and applying it. And and I think the same thing will go here. Um, there are progressive states that are going to say, okay, great, this is a floor, but we're we're not satisfied with the floor. Uh, we're we're um, we're going to bump against the ceiling of EMS practice and be progressive. And there's other ones going to say, oh, this looks good to me. Uh, let's uh, put it into law and, and make sure that they don't do anything more than this. So I don't think it's really going to change uh, the way EMS is practiced uh, to a great deal. I think the floor should have been higher, uh, but at least they clearly state that it's a floor. You know, and what's really good is I was reading it again, another, you know, I wrote down notes as I was, you know, taking it, knowing that we were going to talk about this. You know, one of the things that I kept saying to myself was it's a good thing that states have delegated practice, you know, meaning yeah. that meaning <laughs> that the medical director, you know, and I don't know that every state has a has delegated practice. Kelly, maybe you know better than I do. But basically, you know, here in Missouri and Texas, if the uh, medical director wants you to do a skill and he's willing to train you and he's willing to sign you off with competency, you now can do that skill. And oh, no, no. A great many states are not yeah. do not have the the freedom that that Missouri and Texas grant to medical directors. A lot of them just they're legislatively defined as the scope of practice is this and thou shalt not exceed it. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So but then when you think about the EMS scope of practice model, it truly is a floor then. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and here the the thing is is we can get all wrapped around the axle about this document. Um, but the, the thing you have to understand is, is, you know, it's very easy for a small, um, uh, well-run EMS service to be progressive. For, you know, Jeff Jarvis and, and Williamson County EMS. Uh, small enough and professional enough, Jeff knows his medics, uh, probably has a personal relationship with, with many of them. Uh, there's a degree of, of trust there. Uh, and, and their standards are, are high because uh, he can manage that task before him. On the other hand, if you have 2,000 medics under your, under your purview, um, you have to delegate a certain amount of, uh, of the duties of medical director. And, and your protocols and your standards have to be kind of vanilla. Um, you have to kind yeah, of broaden no, things out. I don't know about that. I mean, I work... I, I do, unless unless you have a bunch of other medical directors that that agree with you and and will do those things. But the thing is, when I talk about an, an area of that size or a service of that size, you're also not talking just about the medical directors uh, that supervise uh, these these crews and and the people that develop and promulgate those protocols. We're also talking about well, supervisors super. Systems. Field supervisors are operational. They're not clinical. No, but I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the, just the factors within that service. I'm talking about all the, the external factors, the, the different hospital systems that you interact with and, and, you know, that sort of thing, different expectations. So the, by necessity, the things get a little more vanilla, the bigger it is. And if we're looking at the scope of practice uh, on the macro scale, the same is true here. Uh, if you're going to write a national scope of practice model um, uh, applicable to EMS agencies in all 50 states, 
you can't get super, super detail because some people are not going to be able to, hell, many states, entire states are not going to be able to make that standard if you make that the floor. Um, uh, if it's a, a really, really high floor, some people are going to still be in the basement. Um, so I can, I can dig that it's, that it's, uh, it has to be kind of watered down. Um, I just, uh, am thankful for, uh, to live in a state where, uh, we recognize needs and, and, and aren't afraid to go above the national standard, uh, if that's what our state and our community, uh, EMS needs. And I'll probably will not be moving to any state that, that, that uh, thinks that the national standard, uh, the national scope of practice model is, as written is sufficient. The biggest thing that I took out of there is yeah. your comment that you can dig it. So I yeah, think that I, that really, yeah, I think that that really stuck out with me, you know, as very, otherwise it was a TLDR kind of comment. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So TLD, long didn't listen. Yeah. So th- there also was a big discussion, Kelly, which I I really enjoyed reading on um, the difference between the scope of practice versus the standard of care, yeah. and you know. It, the and it, it very it went into detail very uh it went into some great detail where it talked about that this scope of practice shouldn't be defined as the standard of care yeah. um and I, I thought that that was very good because you know the concerns that you're talking about is ceiling and floor and you know what people are going to do with it they shouldn't define this that this is the way that it has to be done this is the way that care has to be given and uh, I thought that that was a really good section in this document. Well, you know, they they outline what goes into the the scope of practice and, and the the four domains uh, that must be adhered to to practice these these particular skills, uh, and uh, they require that uh, the the practitioner be educated to perform the skill, certified to perform the skill, licensed to perform the skill by the state. And credentialed by the lo- the agency or local medical director to perform that skill, and all four domains have to be met in order to actually practice these things. And and I think it's cute that uh, they've got some of the busiest Venn diagrams I have ever seen in my life. Uh, this would either make Ginger Lock uh, weep for joy or 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 dance in happiness. I don't know which, but uh, some of these Venn diagrams they have are are kind of incomprehensible. But you know. On my one point, I didn't make on my my talk uh, my comment about standardization and and uh, broader scope is that uh, uh, back on page ten it talks about uh, a national the national scope of practice and how the two thousand seven model was implemented. Uh, but some things stand out to me here that this is the kind of thing that we're going to have to accept if we're going to have a national standard for EMS practice and care is that you can't have all this wide variability and, and variability in definition and practice. Uh, we have to, to a certain extent, conform to one standard so that an EMT in Delaware is the same thing as an EMT in Louisiana, in Texas, or in Missouri. Um, in the, after the 2007 uh, practice model was implemented, uh, we recognize four nationally recognized levels of EMS clinicians as described by the 2007 practice model compared to 44 different EMS practice certifications uh, reported in 1996. 
And the CIMSO's data from 2013 says that 100% of states use the practice model as the floor of psychomotor skills at the EMT and paramedic level. Um, 76% of the states use it as the floor at the EMR level, and 88% of states are using the practice model as the minimum uh, allowable the floor at the AEMT level. Um, and they're retiring the I-99 exam uh, at the end of this year. And the CIMSO also says that 90% of, of states effectively require national EMS program accreditation at the paramedic level. The standardization thing is moving forward. We are making big progress in that regard. And, and, and a national standard for EMS uh, certification is within sight, uh, I think. And, and I think this document kind of helps further that uh, to a certain extent. It may not be as aggressive as we want. Um, you know, we might have to settle for a lower floor as long as that floor is uniform for all 50 states. Hey, Kelly, were you surprised that you didn't see a, a scope model for community paramedics? Yes. Yes, yes. I was. Yes, I was uh, high. And then I was, but, trying, I was trying to debate that in my mind. So is it something that we wanted them to put pen to paper on and to kind of outline that scope of practice? Or is it best that they left it alone so we can still I, define it? But I, I didn't I, know. I was kind of going back and forth, but I was a little disappointed that it, it, you know, it wasn't at least addressed. To, to my mind, uh, all the different specialty care certifications or the specialty uh, practitioners like community care, uh, paramedics and, and mobile integrated health and flight paramedicine and remote paramedicine, I think those things are best left out of the document because using your example of, of mobile integrated health, you know, that's still very much a community and system driven solution. You know, uh, a community health, uh, community paramedicine program in, in one agency may focus on diabetic patients. Uh, others may focus on yeah. CHF patients. And, and so. But don't you at least, it, it, don't you at least, this, don't you at least knock it down to say, you know, let's leave that to the medical directors to decide. Same thing with tactical yeah. medicine, you know, same yeah, thing, I think so. you know, so, but, but I see your point. Yeah. But, but, but when you, but when you put it in a document, it, even if it's not, in practice, or if it's not technically law, it becomes, it, it, it takes on this patina of regulation and law and, and the standard. You know, how many times have you heard people say ACLS standards uh, as if they are, are yeah. written in law Rit somewhere? Written on, um, written they, on uh, two tablets that, that came down out of a mountain. Yeah, and, uh, you know, straight from, from Tom Ofter Heidi's uh, uh, <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, but they're not. They're guidelines, yeah. and, and American Heart Association acknowledges that. But when you put this stuff on paper, it takes on some some uh, greater meaning to That's many right. regulatory yeah. uh, agencies and policymakers and that sort of thing. Right. So I think that, that leaving community paramedicine out was probably a favor uh, and a good thing, um, and it, it will allow – agencies and communities to, to come up with their own solutions that best fit their their model. Interesting. So, so let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and take our mid-show break. And then right. I, I want to go ahead and talk about the interpretive guidelines and really kind of get into some of these skills as we get into the second part of the show. But Kelly, before we do that, why don't you go ahead and tell us about Pulsera? Pulsera provides a real-time communication network across entire regions, and it's free to EMS. The Pulsera platform, built on the power of mobile technology, Unites the right clinicians at the right time for the right patient, providing transparency and streamlined communication. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, build the team, and communicate using audio, video, instant messaging, data, 
images, and key benchmarks. Any patient, any condition, every time. Oh, and did we mention it's free to EMS? For more information, visit pulsera.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. So, Kelly, when we think about now the interpretive guidelines, and if you're following along there at home, it starts on page 32, you know, this really is the outline or the methodology for deciding the appropriateness of skills that are going to be done at the specific levels. And, you know, we've talked about for a lot of years that we need to kind of expand the scope of practice of at least the EMT level with our partners so they're able to do more things to assist us in the back of the ambulance, but things that they're not able to do. So I, I was a little bit, uh, you know, disappointed that I didn't see an increase there, but I'm curious to know what you thought. You know, I, I look at this and I, I kind of, uh, I get a little depressed because comparing this skills matrix to our own uh, similar skills matrix for, for Louisiana's EMS system, uh, there's a whole lot of blank spots under different provider levels that are not there in Louisiana. Um, uh, I'm thankful in a way that my state allows uh, trust and, and allows its EMTs uh, uh, a much broader scope of practice than, than the national floor uh, would indicate. Um, but there are some good nuggets to be, to be still found in here. Um, you know, uh, CPAP. One of the the probably yeah, one of the happy most to revolutionary see that. interventions now is going to be a BLS level skill. And I think it by God should be. You know, I agree. Um, there's some other things in here as well. EMTs giving aerosolized and nebulized uh, medications. So uh, inhaled bronchodilators via small volume nebulizers is going to be an EMT level skill uh, under this scope of practice. That's a good thing as well. I don't think it's going to require significantly more education on the part of the EMTs. I'm basically, you know, you take an EMT course now, they teach you uh, about beta-2 agonist uh, bronchodilators and how to administer them via the patient's own uh, meter dose inhaler. This is just teaching one more delivery method, and that's all. The pharmacology is, is no different. Um, and that's going to greatly expand uh, the good that, that an EMT level uh, practitioner can do. Um, the, there are some, uh, some other things in here. You, you talked about the naloxone thing that, that cops can do uh, with virtually no medical training, and that's a can of worms I do not want to open. But it does say here that from the EMR level up, intranasal medications Unit dosed and pre-measured are, are uh, within the scope for all four levels of the EMS provider, EMR, EMT, advanced EMT, and paramedic. Yeah, as long as it's a pre-measured uh, dose, you know, a, a kit set up, boom, done. Uh, so there there's some things to like in here. Um, you know, one of the things that I was, I was kind of afraid of was that endotracheal intubation was going to be out. You know? Yeah, I was looking... I was looking for rescue airway to see how they were going to talk about rescue yeah. airway, but I think that, you know, rescue airways are really going to take over for innovation. Yeah. I know you, you are different. You have a different opinion than that, but I, I would thought that uh, it would have been good to see that rescue airways could be used by all levels. But I think that, you know, w with the proper training, you know, you're opening the mouth to insert tube. So there's a bright side to it, even though superglottic airways were, were not, um, were not handed down to the to the EMT and EMR level. 
at least they didn't take into tracheal intubation and supraglottic airways away from from the the paramedic level. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe that if you don't, if you are not uh, proficient in endotracheal intubation and don't get uh, a requisite number of attempts to maintain that proficiency, they're probably your primary airway should be a supraglottic airway. Uh, you know, there may be pockets of excellence around this country uh, that do very well at it, but by and large, the profession has not managed to copy uh, or emulate those pockets of excellence to any large degree. Uh, and so they remain isolated pockets of airway excellence. Um, hopefully, our, you know, uh, that will spread, but thus far it hasn't. So I think we dodged a bullet there. Um, but when the, the next time the scope of practice document is revised, if we don't get better at it, I, I still would not be surprised to see it disappear. I, I think we dodged a couple of bullets and we missed a couple of things that really could have made a difference. Uh, the document states in the in the early pages that acknowledges the the rapidly changing face of healthcare and it cites specifically our current opioid epidemic. You would think that given awareness of the the extent of opiate and opioid abuse in this country, it's currently the biggest trauma killer in the United States. Uh, that and our role in in helping manage that and, and the role of healthcare in helping create and foster that problem, uh, you'd think that that some better attention to novel uh, non-opiate means of analgesia would be would be addressed here. Mm-hmm. But they don't have um, inhaled nitrous oxide for anything but the paramedic and advanced EMT level. And yeah, that's man, a good. That's a good point, bro. That's a yeah, good point. That should be an EMT skill. Yeah. To my mind, heck, get, make it an, an EMR skill. It's not that difficult. Hand the patient uh, a patient circuit and say, breathe this until you feel better. And they breathe it until they feel better. And if they breathe too much of it, they drop the, the exactly. mask away from their face. And then when they start hurting, they can pick it up again. And even more, <laughs> even more over, Kelly, I, I think one of the fears in you know, the agencies is that it could be abused. Well, any drug can be abused. Well, yes, it can. Yeah. But they, they do have... Uh, if you they hire do... people that are going to abuse your nitrous oxide, you're hiring the wrong people. It's not a nitrous oxide problem. But I think that they, they have meters on them, too, now, that when you put it on somebody and you could document, you could kind of keep track of how much is being, you know, how much is being delivered. What is the what is the, the antidote for uh, iatrogenic opiate overdose? Uh, Narcan. Yeah. You know, if we give too much morphine, diluted fentanyl, we give them Narcan. Um, and now Narcan is a skill uh, and a medication allowed to be administered by all levels. So EMRs all the way up have the ability to counteract uh, an opiate overdose. So what would be the harm in allowing pain, novel pain medication, uh, even opiates, to be accessible a broader array of EMS providers. I'm not saying give intranasal uh, fentanyl or um, or IV fentanyl to EMRs and EMTs, but what would be the harm if they've already got a, a kit with Narcan uh, uh, mucosal atomizer in their bag? What would be the harm of carrying, say, Actik lollipops, the little fentanyl lollipops? Oh, what a great idea. You know, what would be the harm... Um, you know, especially in those systems that don't have uh, a lot of paramedic coverage and EMTs are handling the vast majority of calls in right, rural right. And, and remote areas. You know, you're an hour from 
an hour, two hours from a major medical center, maybe even an hour from your ALS intercept, that's a long time for a farmer with a broken leg to hurt. But if the EMRs and EMTs can give him some nitrous or fentanyl lollipop and have the ability to counteract any overdose on that, which unlikely if they're if they're doing it with the with the active lollipops, uh, why wouldn't that be in there? But, you know. Hey, at least being aware of that, maybe maybe local agencies and states can can uh, augment that, uh, you know, take that into consideration and exceed that floor that the, the scope of practice model is set. Folks, there's a lot of stuff to unpack here in this scope of practice model. None of the changes are, are really all that earth shattering. But if you pour through it, you see some good stuff to find there. So you, you see some places where where they, they missed the boat to, to be progressive and to do something that would have uh, uh, potentially a lot of benefit and would be easily implemented. Uh, but by the same token, the, they, they hit it out of the park on some things like, like the uh, nebulized beta agonists and anticholinergics for EMTs and, and the ability to check on blood sugar and, and uh, CPAP for, for uh, EMT level on up. So there, there's good and there's bad in there. Uh, we encourage you guys all to read it uh, and to advocate for uh, the things above that scope in, at your own agency. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think about it. Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Cevallero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. And catch you guys next week.